Okay, good evening. So we're up to part two of the three-part Isaiah stint. Last week we dealt with chapters one through six, talking about how it starts off, the first nine verses are presumably from the very end of Isaiah's career. We get a sense of the bleak, terrible destruction that had occurred throughout Isaiah's lifetime. Then we dealt with the, you know, swinging back to the beginning of his career, where we see the Silver Age, everybody is, well, not everybody, but a lot of people are wealthy, there's political stability, everything is looking good, there's peace in the region. And that's because the Assyrians are busy smashing Aram off to the north. And that freed up Israel to be able to reconquer several smaller territories that had been lost to them over the generations. A lot of people become wealthy in war. Everything was looking good, they were feeling confident, feeling great. Isaiah, the prophet in the south, as well as his contemporary Amos, we'll get back to him when we get to Amos, are shocked and appalled at the level of immorality that has taken over. And they say, you think that just because things are good now, they're always going to be good. This is a terrible error. And in fact, if we don't clean up our act right now while times are good during the Silver Age, soon enough, those Assyrians who are right now going after our enemies are going to be coming for us because they want everybody. The Assyrians are equal opportunity conquerors. They, they, they always get their nation. They, they never, ever, ever lose. It's, it's actually pretty impressive. So we talked about how Isaiah called for repentance several times over. Again, good evening. And also, again, I have source sheets for everybody, so don't, don't, feel, don't feel left out. Unfortunately, I had another. Okay, let's just, all right, we got him. All right. We're going to get this together. Isaiah spends the early parts of his career crying for repentance, saying that that'll clear up all the problems. Alternatively, we're going to have to suffer quite a bit, and God will use the smelting fire, the logic being that something terrible will happen. The impurities will all float to the surface. They'll get skimmed off and we'll be left with the pure silver that God always wanted anyway. And that's the imagery that is used. Unfortunately, by chapter 5, the people begin to mock the prophet, saying, okay... You keep on saying that we're in trouble. We can't help but notice that our bank accounts are soaring and the stocks are up and we're running up our credit card bills and nobody cares. This is great. We don't see any doom down the line whatsoever. But if you, if you're, if you want to predict doom, let's see some doom. That's the moment where that's the break. Where all of a sudden the people, not only are they ignoring the prophet, but they're mocking the prophet. Once there's that kind of cynicism and sarcasm... They don't listen to him anymore. They'll, they'll never listen to him. At this moment, God proclaims a Gazar Din in Hebrew, a sealed decree. And that's in the year 736 BCE. We discussed God's, you know, well, Isaiah's throne room vision of God on the throne, surrounded by angels in its context. It's a very horrifying prophecy. It's talking about how God says, this is the end. And in fact, Isaiah, your mission now is to mislead the people and make sure that they never repent, which is an unusual task for a prophet. And Isaiah never calls for repentance again in the next whole pile of chapters. But he's not going to give up on the people so easily because he's a prophet. He's their leader. He, not, not in a political sense, but he's their religious conscience. He wants to bring the people back. So his next move is going to be to take it to the kings. He's going to try to influence political policies to try to help go through all of that. And that opens up our curtains Right now, Tiglat-Pileser is the king of Assyria. We already mentioned him last time. He took over in 745. And his job, he's changed Assyrian imperial policy. Back in the good old days, the Assyrians ruled many nations. They charged you taxes. 
But typically speaking, they stayed home, and all you had to do is mail them a check. And everything was cool. Tiglath-Pileser decided, as we mentioned at the end of last week, his new policy is, we're going to bring Assyria to you. We're going to make sure that you see us, you hear us, you hear our theology. We're not just going to conquer you and take your money. No, we're going to, we're going to be you. We're coming on in there. And so that was the new policy. So by now, you don't need to be a prophet anymore to realize, oh, the Assyrians are dangerous. Not only are they dangerous, but they are incredibly dangerous. And they can't help but notice, everybody in the region realizes the Assyrians are just rolling through everybody. And so if you're sitting around your Shabbat table, here's what you're talking about. Hopefully, Devrei Torah. But in case there's any politics on the agenda at your table, here's what it would be about during, during this period. Basically, there's two options. What are your options politically? Either you say, well, when the Assyrians get to us, we're just going to throw up our white flags and pay them whatever taxes they want. That's option A. We'll become their vassals. Because who in the world is going to stand up to this mighty empire? They don't lose. So that's one option. Other option is, well, maybe if enough of us tiny nations get together, maybe we could form some kind of coalition against the Assyrians and keep them out of here. Those are your options. And everybody's fighting and arguing, and that's what, that's what everybody's dealing with, and not just the people around the Shabbat tables. Every single nation in the region is debating this point, and every single king and the advisors are debating this at this point, because they all realize these, this is a decision of life and death. You never want to be somebody's vassal. It's awful. Don't ever try it. It's really awful to be a vassal state, because the Assyrians will charge you exorbitant taxes, they'll cripple your economy, and if chas v'shalom, if God forbid, one time you miss a payment, they're going to roll in with their full might and finish you off. Right? Once, you're on the, once, once there's payroll going on, once you're a vassal, you can't break that treaty. And if you do, you're done. The Assyrians will come and get you. Right? On the other hand, fighting them seems like absolute suicide. There's one other power in the region who matters in this story, and that is Egypt. Egypt is behind a wall of all these tiny states, including Israel. And Egypt really would not like the Assyrians to come here. They kind of like being the regional power. They're way stronger than we are, stronger than Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistines. They kind of like things the way that they are. And the last thing they want to have is this mighty Assyrian empire coming in, tackling all these tiny states one by one, and then they're on Egypt's border. Who knows? Maybe they'll attack Egypt. They've attacked Babylonia. They're attacking the mighty powers also. Egypt doesn't want that. So what they're doing is saying, hey guys... Why don't we form a coalition against the Assyrians and we'll help fund it and we'll send troops. So that's what the Egyptians are up to at this time. So that's tempting. It's better than going at it yourself. How in the world are the Judeans or the Israelites or Aram for that matter? How is anybody going to fight this mighty Assyrian power? And so the curtains come up in chapter 7. And by now, the righteous kings, Uziah and Yotam, are dead. And Ahaz, the wicked king, is the, the only wicked king of Yeshayahu's tenure, Isaiah's tenure, is sitting on the throne. And here we are, the dramatic moment of truth in the history of the Judean kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah. Does everybody have sore sheets before we begin? I think I've been doing a fabulous job in distribution, given that I've been here the whole time. But I want to make sure, I want to make sure that, that, I, that I really am doing what I think that I'm doing. In the reign of Ahaz, son of Yotam, son of Uziah, king of Judah... King Ritzin of Aram and King Pekah, son of Remaliah of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, marched upon Jerusalem to attack it. But they were not able to attack it. Remember that old game, Risk? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I was horrible at it for two reasons. One, I'm colorblind. 
which meant that in bad lighting, the red, green, and brown armies were more or less the same. So what I would do is pick something like yellow or blue at the beginning of the game and just attack everybody else, figuring that's not me. That, that I could distinguish. But it was a bad way to play, and I, I usually got crushed. Another reason I was a bad player is that I was just really bad. Right? One of the things that I mistakenly did is that if you had a mighty power sitting above you, okay, so you realize they're the threat, right? But it's so satisfying to beat up on these little nations below you that just have one army each. So you figure, let's capture some of them. Okay, but then the big guy's going to come and wipe me out, and that's, that's why I didn't win a whole lot. All right, so that's what's happening here, actually. The, I think I have a Huh? Uh oh. Huh? Oh my goodness, how did this even happen? That's so interesting. You didn't get this from me, that's why. You got this probably from the pews. Because I didn't have any of these at all in my hand. But anyway, are we, are we good now? That was really cool. How did you do that? Uh, somebody must have left it here from. There you go. See? See? There you go. No, no, no. Review is good. You don't understand. And, and you won't understand chapter 7 unless you know 1 through 6. So this is, all, this is all good. Yeah, so I used to get clobbered. So that's what Aram and, and the northern kingdom of Israel are doing. They're playing the foolish game of risk that I used to play, which is you have the mighty Assyrians above them. And the mighty Assyrians are attacking Aram. So Aram has convinced the northern kingdom of Israel to join them in coalition against the Assyrians. So if if you're a good risk player, what you're doing is you're getting all your troops up there to protect against the Assyrians. But you see, this northern coalition wants Ahaz, the southern kingdom of Judah, to join in this coalition too. And Judah really doesn't want to get involved because at at least as of today, the Assyrians aren't on his border. Okay, it's very short-sighted, okay. But all the same, why get involved in the conflict against the Assyrians prematurely? So he says, I'm staying neutral. So Aram and... Israel don't like that. So instead of saying, let's just give up on those guys, they attack the south, which means obviously they will sustain casualties too. But they're attacking the south with the goal of either forcing Ahaz to back down, or perhaps even staging a coup and getting a pro, well, really an anti-Assyrian king on the throne. And they're, they're, in this chapter, there's somebody named Ben Taveal. I don't know who this guy is, but he was down there. And it seems like there was a movement to oust Ahaz and to put this fellow Ben Taveal on the throne, presumably because he was anti-Assyrian. But Ahaz was what's called pro-Assyrian. When you're pro-Assyrian, believe me, you hate them as much as the anti-Assyrians do. Everybody hates the Assyrians, and rightly so. They're deadly. Pro-Assyrian just means you don't want to fight them. That's all pro-Assyrian means in that sentence. You don't want to fight them. You're willing to pay taxes. You'd rather be a vassal than battle against them and, and commit national suicide. So the northern coalition of Aram and Shomeron, Aram and Israel, are furious. And that's what's going on. That's the backdrop of their marching against Ahaz. But in the meantime, that's going to make them vulnerable to or would deplete their troops and resources by the time the Assyrians come. Verse 2. Now, when it was reported to the house of David that Aram had allied itself with Ephraim, their hearts and the hearts of their people trembled as trees of the forest sway before the wind. So beautiful. It's like, you know, here you have this war going on, but prophets can't help themselves. It's so poetic, right? It's such a nice way of describing this sheer terror of the south. The southern kingdom realizes, hey, we can't possibly fight off this northern coalition of Aram and... Okay, we're good. 
Aram and, and the northern kingdom of Israel. So they panic. Now, if you're King Ahaz and you have these two northern powers above you, breathing down your throat and invading you, what are your options? What do you do? You have two nations that are stronger than you attacking you. What do you do? Either you surrender, right? Or you fight to the death and you just do your best and hope that you'll do better than you think you're going to do. Or you look for an ally. So Ahaz is thinking, I'm never going to beat these guys. I'm not surrendering Jerusalem to these guys either. Why should I forfeit this? Then I'm going to be ousted. Then my competitor will get on the throne. I'll get assassinated. None of this is good. I know I need help. And so he and his cabinet sit down and decide, maybe the time has come to send a huge bribe, not 25 bucks, huge bribe to the Assyrians and say, look, we need help. We'll be your vassal. That's what's on his agenda. His agenda is, let's get the mighty Assyrians to come. The Assyrians will flatten this northern coalition. We'll be out a lot of money, but it's worth it because we'll still be alive. That's his game plan. So he's, meantime, setting up strategy in the event of an immediate invasion. So this is the moment of truth. He has to choose between becoming a vassal to the Assyrians, which is what he would like to do, or to join this northern coalition, to surrender and say, okay, fine, I'll just join you, leave me alone, don't invade my country. Verse 3, But the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out with your son, Sha'ar Yashuv, to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, by the road of Fuller's Field. Without knowing all the geography, why is Ahaz at this pool right now? You know the answer to this question, whether or not you know this story. Why is, he at the, why is the king at this pool right now? The answer is, you may recall being in Jerusalem at some point in your life. There's no water in there. You need to ensure the water supply. What they're, expe- what they're doing is they're making war preparations. They know that something big and bad is going down. And so what they're doing is they have to fortify what became Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, you know, Hezekiah's tunnels that you hike through when you're 15 years old. All right, that's his son. And he was preparing for the next round of the Assyrian invasions, right? And we're dealing with exactly right now. Everybody realizes war, war is coming, and that means the kings have to make sure with their head honchos, the big shots are there, to secure the water supply for the city in the event of an attack. Because if you don't have water, then everybody dies. It's a bad thing. So that's why he's at the pool. What does the name Sha'ar Yashuv mean? Prophets don't just have kids and, and, and name them generic names. What does Sha'ar Yashuv mean? Ah, so that's Sha'ar with an ayin. This is Sha'ar, it's hard to tell with the English. Sha'ar, correct, it's a remnant. Remnant will return. So ride with this one. So obviously, why is he bringing him? Sha'ar Yashuv never speaks in this story because he's not relevant as a character. But his name is what matters. For prophets, if you just schlep your son along, you're not just schlepping him along to like, hey, you want to meet the king? Maybe we can get his autograph. It's not about that at all, right? It's all about, if Sha'ar Yashuv just stands there and wears a t-shirt saying Sha'ar Yashuv, he's done his prophetic job. Sha'ar Yashuv means a remnant will return. Now watch how you could read this one, ride, ride, ride with possibilities, all of which might be the meaning of this prophecy. It could mean, a remnant will return. Hooray, this is good. Some of us will survive. In fact, the kingdom of Judah will survive. We'll be the remnant when the northern kingdom of Israel falls. Or it can mean a remnant will repent. Yashuv also can mean will repent. Maybe it's a call for repentance. Anybody who repents right now and serves God, you might be able to survive this dark period. Or take the same words and just make them bleaker. Only a remnant will return, but most of us are going to get killed. 
or only a remnant will repent. But most of us will not and still face doom. You can take those two words and do a lot of things with them. And they're all actually inherent to the prophecy. What's happening here is Isaiah is saying, Ahaz, you, you may not realize this as a king, but I'm a prophet. This is the moment of truth. If you make the wrong decision here, you are dooming the country. So I happen to have divine advice that I can give you. And it's all up to you whether you're going to realize my son's name, Sha'ar Yashuv, as something positive. You can save the kingdom today. Or whether you're, you're going to blow it, and then only a remnant will return. But most of us are going to be crushed. It's an amazing what you can do with two words. But, but that's why he's bringing him along. He's bringing Sha'ar Yashuv along to give that prophetic oomph. He's letting Ahaz know, just by Sha'ar Yashuv's presence, that the potential is there for him to make the right decision. And what's the right decision? Verse 4. And say to him, this is still God speaking to Isaiah to tell the king, Be firm and be calm. Do not be afraid and do not lose heart on account of those two smoking stubs of firebrands, on account of the raging of Ritzian and his Arameans and the son of Rimaliah. It's so poetic, you have, to, you have to make sure you understand. This is cold political advice spoken in prophetic, poetic language. What's the, po- what's the political advice that he's, that God, it's not advice, it's an order from God. What is the order? What is, what is God, if, if God could dictate political policy in this story, what is the policy? Don't surrender. And, huh? Stand tough and remain neutral. Don't do anything. In other words, don't listen to anybody's advisors. Here the advisors are busy duking out. Either we must become vassals to the Assyrians and bring them in as an ally, which is what Ahaz really wants to do. Or let's surrender and join this anti-Assyrian coalition and fight the Assyrians. What Isaiah is saying through prophecy is, Ahaz, literally, you've got to have faith. And in this case, faith is do nothing at all. He refers to the Northern Alliance as smoking stubs of firebrand. See, here's the, it's the opposite of our slogan, right, or our expression. Here what he's saying is when there's smoke, there used to be a fire. That's how he's using this expression. They were firebrands. They used to be very scary and dangerous, those Aram and, and Israel. They used to be powerful. But by now they're burnt out. All you see is smoke, so you're panicking. But it's not where there's smoke, there's fire. It's where there's smoke, there used to be fire. You have nothing to fear from them. And therefore, please don't invite the Assyrians to the region. It will destroy all of us. Keep them out of here. Don't become their vassal. Please, please, please. Once you make that relationship, there's no turning back. And then he goes on for a while just reiterating that the northern alliance of Aram and Israel are not going to harm anybody. So, verse 10 comes along. The Lord spoke further to Ahaz. Ask for a sign from the Lord your God, anywhere down to Sheol or up to the sky. God usually doesn't like being tested. In fact, he takes it very wrongly. Right? And the Torah gets upset when people test him. Here God is saying, look, I'm God. Ask for any trick. Right? You want the moon to shine real light and the, and the sun to reflect it? Whatever it takes. But you have to understand, God says, ask for anything, I'll do it, and then you'll see that this is really a divine political command. It's not just a prophet being a political scientist. Please test me. I'll give you anything you want. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask, and I will not test the Lord. If you take that verse in a vacuum, he sounds very righteous. Right? Because you're not supposed to test God. 
But in this context, the whole point is God is saying, please test me, anything. He says, oh, I, I will not test the Lord. Meaning, Yeshayahu, Isaiah, get out of here. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not, I, I don't want your tricks. I don't want your tests. I don't want any, miracles, nothing. I want to invite the Assyrians to the region. I want to be their vassal. I think that's our best shot of survival. So he's saying, I will not test the Lord. And that's it. Isaiah goes from this plea. He realizes that this is when the decree is sealed. It, it's over. Ahaz just made the worst decision in political history for, for ancient Israel. Disaster. Isaiah then says in verse 13, Listen, house of David, Isaiah retorted, is it not enough for you to treat men as helpless that you also treat my God as helpless? You don't want God's advice? Well, let me tell you something, Ahaz. This is what's going to happen. Assuredly, my Lord will give you a sign of his own accord. Okay, you don't want God's trick to prove him right? He's going to give you a different sign. Look, the young woman is with child, about to give birth to a son. Let her name him Emmanuel. So she's going to, the young woman, it's not clear if it's Ahaz's wife or the prophet's wife. Either way it works. And he's going to be, what does Emmanuel mean? Here's another symbolic name. God is with us. This name became a lot more popular, although there are Sha'ar Yashuvs today, right? We have Rav Sha'ar Yashuv Kohen. It's a beautiful name. But Emmanuel certainly, or Emmanuel, certainly became a far more popular name over time. God is with us. For before the lad knows to reject bad and choose the good, the ground whose two kings you dread shall be abandoned. So what's he saying? You're inviting the Assyrians to the region? Well, you should know that before this Emmanuel is just a little kid, what's going to happen? The threat will have dissipated. The threat will have dissipated, meaning, just keep score here. That means, and this really happened, by the way, the Book of Kings even relates the event. Ahaz did send a huge bribe over to the Assyrians. The Assyrians did respond. The Assyrians crushed and put Aram out of existence and then flattened the northern Israel you know, armies, and the rest of them retreated and would shortly be, and they would shortly be exiled as the ten lost tribes within the next decade, right? In other words, dear Ahaz, what you're going to do actually will work, right? In short order, the two kings that you are afraid of are going to be crushed by the Assyrians. In other words, you're, you're going to get something out of your move. Don't think that it's going to be a total failure. Total failure would be sending a huge bribe to the Assyrians, the Assyrians laughing and staying there, and then the northern coalition trashing the south. That would be worse. Isaiah is saying, no, it actually will work. And by the way, it's kind of strange to think about it this way, but on the day that Ahaz died, Ahaz invited the Assyrians to the region, became a vassal. The Assyrians came and squashed this coalition. When Ahaz died... Every op-ed across the political spectrum said, that is Ahaz, he saved our lives. We owe our lives to this man. Whether you like him as a politician or you think he's bad because he was wicked, every single Judean would have said, this man saved our lives. Because as of Ahaz's death, all that had happened is this part. Ahaz invited the Assyrians. It was a very risky move. It was expensive. But... He saved the kingdom. So Isaiah is saying, okay, you win on that one. In the short term, you're doing just fine. But let me just speak to you as a prophet for a moment. There's what happens after you die. That's where the deluge part happens. Right? Verse 17. The Lord will ca- cause to come upon you and your people and your ancestral house such days as never have come since Ephraim turned away from Judah, that self-same king of Assyria. Meaning, you should know, Ahaz. Today, you're saving your kingdom. 
tomorrow those Assyrians are going to turn on you, on the southern kingdom, and they're going to wreak such terrible destruction. In that day, my Lord will cut away with the razor that is hired beyond the Euphrates, but the king of Assyria, the hair of the head and the hair of the legs, and shall clip off the beard as well. Meaning they're going to shave the country of Judah down. They're going to kill a lot of people. They're going to destroy the towns. They're going to burn everything up. They're going to exile people. And in that day, each man shall save alive a heifer of the herd and two animals of the flock, and he shall obtain so much milk that he could eat curds. Thus, everyone who is left in the land, Sha'ar Yashuv, right? A remnant will return, shall feed on curds and honey. You should know that at least there will be a righteous remnant. Don't think you're destroying the South to total annihilation, but mostly annihilation. But at least the survivors will have some nice abundance. For in that day, every spot where there could stand a thousand vines worth of a thousand shekels of silver shall become a wilderness of thorn bush and thistle. One will have to go there with bow and arrows, for the country shall be all thorn bushes and thistles, and presumably also criminals who are taking advantage of the desolation. So you're going to have to go with your weapons if you want to travel. But the perils of thorn bush and thistle shall not spread to any of the hills that could only be tilled by a hoe. Here cattle shall be let loose, and sheep and goats shall tramp about. So it's a three-pronged plan. Ahaz was was short-term man. He said, if we just pay the Assyrians a bribe, they'll come and they'll crush the bad guys. They did. So he saved the kingdom. Isaiah said, yeah, that's part one. Part two is, then the Assyrians are going to turn against the southern kingdom and bring it to near ruin. Part three is, there will be a righteous remnant, there will be survivors, and they will live in prosperity, but most of this country will become wilderness. Places that used to be inhabited, towns, people used to live there, thriving highways, all of that stuff, thorns and thistles, total desolation. That's what you've done, Achaz. Congratulations. And with that, Isaiah storms out of the palace, spends chapter 8 trying to convince the people of this three-pronged plan. But it seems very clear that Isaiah failed. You know, this was the, big, this was the moment. He had to get the king to listen. For the record, it's a hard order to order. A, it's a hard thing to tell a king, have faith and do nothing, when all your advisors are saying do A or B. It was a lot of faith that Isaiah demanded of this wicked king. And the wicked king didn't have that faith. He didn't even have a normal amount of faith. But it was a very severe command that Isaiah gave to King Ahaz. And this sets the stage for gloom and doom. Because after all, I just told you the three prongs, right? Isaiah came in hoping to save the entire southern kingdom of Judah. And he walked out of the palace. Well, it's not the palace. at the water supply, right? He's at the water tunnels. He walks away from the king realizing all is lost. He's going to invite the Assyrians to the region. He'll save the kingdom in the short term, but we're, we're going to pay such a dear price, you can't even believe it. By the end of chapter 8, I just want to read one very depressed verse. Source 2 over here. Behold, distress and darkness with no daybreak, straightness and gloom with no dawn. Couldn't say it better than that. Isaiah's like, it's, it's all lost. I mean, that's just a personal reflection of the prophet looking back on what just happened and looking into the future, knowing this is what we're looking at. There's no salvation. There's no light at the end of this tunnel. The Assyrians are coming. The Assyrians are really bad. And the Assyrians are way more powerful than we are. And if God isn't helping us because we've been immoral, we're finished. And so you really think that it's over here. You feel the sense of Isaiah. He tried during his youth to win back, you know, B'nai Israel, win back the Judeans from the sil- during the Silver Age. Nothing doing. They were sarcastic to him. Chain broke. Now he tries to save the whole kingdom on the political front. Well, that ain't going to happen. It looks like it's all over. And suddenly, and this is what, one of the things that makes Isaiah Isaiah, chapter 9 rolls in. Source 3. The people that walked in darkness have seen a brilliant light. Where did that come from? That's terrific. 
On those who dwell, dwelt in a land of gloom, light has dawned. Here I thought there was no light at the end of the tunnel. Well, suddenly, there's a light at the end of the same tunnel. Right? It's right after this passage. For a child has been born to us, a son has been given us, and authority has settled on his shoulders. He has been named. The mighty God is planning grace, the eternal father, a peaceable ruler. That's a fabulous nickname. What was this person's real name? Huh? It's, it's not, this is not Emmanuel. This is actually King Chizkiah. This is Hezekiah. This is Ahaz's son. So wicked King Ahaz, who just consigned his nation to doom, has a very righteous son. In fact, it's astounding how this all worked out, right? Uziah and Yotam were very righteous, but then Ahaz was a disaster. But then his son, Chizkiah, was fabulously righteous. But then his son, Menasheh, I don't even want to go there because he's outside of our book, but forget about it. Total disaster. The fathers and sons don't do a good job transmitting either direction. The wicked ones don't make their children wicked either. They become very righteous. So there's a lot of action and reaction in this story. But Isaiah suddenly looks to the future and says, wait a minute, it's not all gloom and doom. We have the most righteous king ever coming down the pike. That's good. In fact, it's really good. In token of abundant authority of peace, without limit upon David's throne and kingdom, that it may be firmly established in justice and in equity now and evermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall bring this to pass. Wait a minute. Just when you thought it was over, he realizes, wait a minute, the next generation, very, very good things can happen. And this transforms. It's really amazing how it does this. Isaiah had a three-pronged plan in chapter 7 and 8. Short-term gain, Assyrians will defeat the enemy, good. Assyrians then will crush Judah, bad. Righteous remnant amidst much desolation. Silver lining, but really bad. Okay, that's chapters 7 and 8. Then come chapters 9 through 12. This prophecy changes everything. All of a sudden, there's a new three-pronged plan. Because there's always a three-pronged plan, but this is a different one. Prong one is... The Assyrians will crush the northern kingdom of Israel and the south. In other words, what used to be prongs one, then two, is now just prong one. The next thing is, God will then crush the Assyrians. Well, that's fantastic. Sooner the better, right? And then the third prong is, the Messianic era will occur. And that's, that's, that's really good. All right. So that's what chapters 9 through 12, which is what we're going to look through, that's what they're about. This little prophecy that kicks off chapter 9 that we just read in source 3, that opens up a whole new dimension in the book of Isaiah. Instead of being at the brink of total despair, dark with no end at the light at the end of the tunnel, it's all awful. There's nothing good here. Suddenly, the mere existence of Hezekiah transforms Isaiah's prophecies. There's this clear recognition that, wait a minute, There could be a light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, we will suffer horrible losses thanks to Ahaz, but yet our righteous remnant might in fact be the perfect future that God is gunning for. And we have the perfect man to be the king, Hezekiah. That's what's going to happen. So prong one is just what we're skipping in the source sheets, but what what you will find in between the sources, that God will punish the wicked of the people of Israel, both northern and southern kingdom. Then we move to source four. Ha! Assyria, rod of my anger, in his hand as a staff is my fury. Does an act boast over him who hews with it, or saw magnify itself above him who wields it? As though the rod raised him who lifts it, as though the staff lifted the man. Lo, the sovereign Lord of hosts will hew off the tree crowns with an axe. 
tall ones shall be felled, the lofty ones cut down. Great poetry again. What's going on here? There's obviously just three verses out of the whole chapter. Syria is God's, it's God's weapon. Right. What everybody was bothered by, all the Judeans were bothered by this. If you're a good theologian, well, what's up with these wicked, vicious Assyrians conquering the planet? How come they're being so successful? That was, a, that was bothering everybody, understandably. It would bother me even if I weren't a theologian because I don't like the Assyrians all that much, right? But especially if you're thinking theologically, where did God go? You have this mighty, vicious empire conquering everybody, killing a lot of people, completely unstoppable, completely. I mean, these Assyrians are very fine warriors. They're amazing. God isn't stopping them. The gods of the other people, are, nobody's stopping them. You can't miss that little point. So here God comes in and says, I got, let me tell you something. Don't forget, even though he's mocking the Assyrians, he's talking to the Jews. He's talking to Judea. They're the ones who hear this prophecy. What he's saying is, dear Judeans, I'm letting them win. They're just a stick in my hand. In other words, right now, there are some wicked people out there that need to be punished. They're my agent. But then God looks at the Assyrians and said, you fools. I'm, I'm the woodcutter, says God, and you're the axe. So here the axe is patting himself on the back, thinking, ha, 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 I really know how to chop down them trees. Right? And God is saying, you fool. It's the person holding the axe that has the power. It's not the axe. Right? You're nothing. You have, you have no power in this equation at all. I'm using you to chop down a tree. But you're just, the, you're just the axe, you arrogant fools. And therefore, God says throughout the prophecy, he's going to crush the Assyrians into oblivion. The Assyrians are going down. That's what this chapter is about. I have a friend and colleague, his name is Professor Sean Zelig Astor. He taught at Yeshiva University, and we, we uh, shared, I'll use, the, I'll use the term very loosely, an office. It was more like, you know, it was kind of cozy. And our deal was, since it was impossible for both of us to actually work in there at the same time, that, you know, we figured out the times of when we'd be there. Anyway, he has since made Aliyah and now teaches at Ben-Gurion University in Be'er Sheva. He's a fabulous Bible scholar. And his name again? Zelig Astor. I call him Zelig, but also he goes by Sean Zelig Astor. Both, both of them are legitimate. Astor like the flower. And... He, one of, he's, a, he's a fabulous expert in the book of Isaiah with regard to the ancient Near Eastern setting. He really knows these Assyrian documents well. So this is where it was really fun. So one day I said, Zalik, one time, how about if we just share the office? And you've got to tell me everything you know. So he said, I'll do that, but it's just too, it's really, it was really small. Why don't we go to my house in Teaneck? I said, cool, I'm off to Teaneck. So we went over to, I went over to Teaneck. We hung out for several hours. And I said, lecture me. I sat there with a notebook. I said, you're, this is your thing. And then he gave me references to some articles of his, you know, which have a minimum of 150 footnotes. And they're, you know, it's really fabulously good. You can't judge a scholarship, scholarly art, article by the number of footnotes. But these happen to be good footnotes, right? He's a fabulous scholar. He, the, the point that came home the most from all of these hours of, of conversations and reading his articles afterwards, I give him full credit for all of this, is that once you read the Assyrian documents, you realize something very, you get a deeper dimension of the book of Isaiah that you simply cannot get from reading the book itself. I know how to read the book itself, but I, I needed him for this piece. He says that on a very deeper level, the Assyrians were engaged in a massive theological propaganda machine. I don't think of such vicious, ruthless nations as having any theology. I think of them as just really bad people, right? But they were very religious, those Assyrians. Yeah, 
But they really did. The Assyrians, the, the country is called Ashur. Zoroastrians, is that what they were? These were not, Zoroastrians are later. They're in later, Persia. The Persians, right. Correct. So what was their? Their god was the god Ashur. That was their patron deity, which is also the name of the country. So I know Ashur as, as the name of the place and the people, the Assyrians. But in fact, it was the god Ashur who they were representing. And their theology was that the king of Assyria, like any good ancient Near Eastern despot, was the representative of the god Ashur. The god of Ashur... His glory fills the earth. May have sound a little familiar. Right? And the religious imperative on the country of Assyria is to conquer the world, to bring about that, to realize that glory of Ashur. And to prove that Ashur is the most powerful deity, that's why the Assyrians never lose battles. And this theology worked really well for a while because those Assyrians just don't lose. So everything was working out well. And then once they conquered you, they didn't just conquer you and charge you all kinds of taxes and deport your populations and dump other people into your territories, which is what they were very into. They had propaganda machines reminding all the conquered peoples that God Ashur is the most powerful one and his glory fills the earth. What the book of Isaiah is doing on a deeper la layer is saying, actually, no, the glory of God is what fills the earth. Thank you very much. Just that God is behind the scenes. God is the one controlling the acts. Right? So there's the polemical level. Besides what it would have done just if you didn't know any of this Assyrian background, I think it's valuable in its own right. But Isaiah and his prophecies turn the Assyrian propaganda machine on its ear. When those Assyrians start saying, the God Ashur, his glory fills the world, God is right there to say, actually, no, my glory fills the world, and the Assyrians are just my pawn or my axe, and they're going down. Yeah, Sandra? Um, so is, this an, is this intentionally an echo of Moses and Pharaoh? Because that was a theomachy also. That was a war of the gods also. Pharaoh kept saying, I don't know this god, I don't know this god. And Moses kept saying, well, this is the god, he's the most powerful god. And so it was always crushing, one versus the other, god with his lowercase g and god with a capital G. You're for sure so correct. So this all over again? All of these wicked nations, they're always representing their deities. You're absolutely right that there are these war of the gods in every single one of these stories, and this one is too. So what is makes Isaiah Moses-like, or is that just... On some level, the, what, makes this, what makes this more interesting than average, Besides, I, I think you're right, Pharaoh's like that, Nebuchadnezzar's like that, the Persians are like that, all these pagan despots, are, are all, they all view themselves as agents of their deities. What makes this one different is that the Assyrians actively tried to promote their theology amidst their conquered peoples, which I don't think Pharaoh did or these other, these other nations did, at least not that I'm aware. So I'm grateful to Professor Astor for calling that to light because I think it really gives you an underlying message of why God is so insistent on God's glory fills the earth. It's not the Assyrians. You might not see God's glory filling the earth all the time, but it's a great insistence. Uh, it brings us to the Messianic prophecies, which are quite celebrated. They're among the most well-known prophecies in the book, actually. After the Assyrians fall, look what's going to happen. Source 5. But a shoot shall grow out of the stump of Jesse. A twig shall sprout from his stock. Okay, so who's the shoot? It should be. Huh? Jesus. Yeah, right. <laughs> Not, huh? I mean, that's the way it's been interpreted. Well, it's been interpreted by Christians that way. <laughs> right? You have to fill the sentence in. No, it's clearly talking about Hezekiah. Right, yeah, very clearly. Right? In other words, we're dealing with, okay, here's what's going to happen, folks. The wicked of the north and the south are going to get destroyed. Right? Then the Assyrians are going to get destroyed. And now a Davidic king is going to come and reign in righteousness. It's clearly Hezekiah. Hezekiah. This is all 8th century BCE, which is going to... 
that, that's what we're talking about. So he's predicting that Hezekiah is going to be this fantastic king. In fact, look what he's going to do. Then he shall judge the poor with equity and decide with justice for the lowly of the land. He shall strike down a land with the rod of his mouth and slay the wicked with the breath of his lips. Not only that, but the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard lie down with the kid, the calf beast of prey and the fatling together with a little boy to herd them. In all of my sacred mount, nothing evil or vile shall be done, for the land shall be filled with devotion to the Lord as water covers the sea. There's a fundamental debate. Again, I'll take either way. You know, whoever's right will work out very nicely. Rambam and, and several predecessors of his don't really think that wolves are going to stop eating lambs when the messianic era comes. They think that carnivores will always be carnivores and the herbivores are always going to have to run for it. That's the way it's going to be because this is, their nat- this is the natural order. So Rambam thinks that the- these verses that we just read are a metaphor. Predator nations will leave gentle nations alone. Right? So it's poetry. Po- prophets use poetry all the time. This is among them. He just doesn't find it plausible. It's possible God can do whatever he wants, but he sees no reason to understand a utopian era to include... Uh, carnivores stopping to be carnivores. I, I regret that I dot, dot, dotted out one of the verses, which is that a child will be able to play next to the hole of a serpent. Right, but it's in that passage also. I just dot, dot, dotted it out for time. But I shouldn't have dot, dot, dot added that verse because the way Ramban learns this passage, he says, no, this is absolutely literal. We're going to go back to an Eden-like existence where everybody's eating fruits and vegetables and grains. Right? No more carnivory. Bummer, but we'll take it. You know, it's a small price to pay for, for the messianic era. This clearly is a very ideal era, and that's why it matters, by the way, that a kid is playing next to a snake hole. We're going to have peace between humans and snakes, which really goes back to the Garden of Eden situation, right? Not only are the lions going to leave the wildebeests alone, finally, I'm sure those wildebeests are thrilled, but, but people and snakes will once again have, have harmony. Either way, again, whichever one it turns out to be, We'll, t- we'll take it. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful vision. The logic is that the whole world will be filled with God's glory. There will be absolute harmony in nature, at the very least among all people, and at most among all creation. The Lord will dry up, verse 15, the Lord will dry up the tongue of the Egyptian sea. He will raise his hand over the Euphrates with the might of his wind and break it into seven wadis. So that can be trodden dry shot. In other words, what's going to happen? Exodus take two. You know, it's complete with bodies of water splitting so that the people of Israel can come home. Right? That's what's going on over here. Every prophet, and, and here's a you know, classic example of that, draws from the Exodus imagery in his messianic or prophecies of redemption. And this prophecy of redemption includes splitting of bodies of water, the ingathering of the exiles. Thus there shall be a highway into other part of his people out of Assyria, such as there was for Israel when it left the land of Egypt. Okay, so if you have and exodus, and world peace, and splitting of seas. What's got to come next? What comes after the splitting of the sea? The destruction of your enemy. Yeah, bring them down. But they're already dead. They were destroyed in chapter 10. What? The giving of the Torah. That, oh, so that's the supreme goal. The one thing needs to happen between splitting of the sea and the giving of the Torah, and, and that will lead to the giving of the Torah. At least we need a song. Uh-huh. Come on, what do you think the Israelites did? We need a song. And not only any old song. Let's read the song, and it'll sound just like the song of the sea, right? In other words, Isaiah's not going to miss this point. Uh-huh. And that day you shall say, I give thanks to you, O Lord. Though you were wroth with me, your wrath has turned back, and you comfort me. Behold, the Lord who gives me triumph. I am confident and unafraid, for Yah the Lord is my strength and might, and he has been my deliverance. Ki Adonai Just quoting from the Shirat Hayam. 
from the song at the sea. Oh, shout for joy, you who dwell in Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Beautiful. Oh, I'm, 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 especially given what we've had the last hour and 45 minutes worth of Isaiah. This is great. The climactic moment of the prophetic sequence is downfall of the wicked people of Israel, downfall of the wicked Assyrians, and now we have the, an, a utopian era. This perfect ideal king should be Hezekiah, Hezekiah. There's going to be world peace. There's going to be a return of all the exiles, complete with splitting of the sea, complete with song at the sea. We got it all. Now, even though I'm in, oh, and not only that, but God finally gets his glory. The whole point is that God's glory has been eclipsed by the Assyrians, but now that they're gone, the pagan empire is finished. We finally can have God's glory manifest and the entire world will recognize. Everything is looking great. There's only one little flaw, and this led to 800 years worth of rabbis really fighting with each other harshly. Not with sticks, but you know how rabbis fight, with their, with their pens. Right? And, and boy, oh boy, did they fight over this one. We have a problem. We have a real problem with this passage. It's very clear that the person, this ideal king, should be Hezekiah. Because that's the sequence. Okay, Isaiah's predicting a three-pronged plan. The prongs are the Assyrians will crush the bad of Israel, then the Assyrians get crushed, and then this. It's obviously Hezekiah. But this stuff didn't happen in Hezekiah's reign. He was a righteous king and everything, but I'm sorry, there was no ingathering of the exiles. The ten lost tribes are still lost. No seas split. Nobody's singing these songs. Wolves didn't dwell with any lambs, no matter how you take that to mean... Right? which led most of our commentators to understand this to be a messianic prophecy. Right? So Christians understood it as a messianic prophecy too. They just picked an identification of a certain figure. Right? So we say we agree with your reading. Rashi agrees with the reading, just that Mashiach hasn't come yet. Right? In other words, that, that's how the majority of our commentators understand it. That it's referring to the long-distant messianic era. Outside of the land of Israel, we read this as the Haftarah, the eighth day of Pesach, of course, in Israel. There ain't no eighth day of Pesach, right? But specifically, we chose this Haftarah as the eighth day of Pesach because it's a prayer from the exile that Mashiach should come, right? The eighth day of Pesach is a messianic thing. We've been celebrating seven days, remembering and reliving the exodus of old, the exodus in the Torah, right? It all goes back to what Elisa said before. In other words, it, it all comes back to, it's about the realization of the Torah, so the eighth day of Pesach, we read that as a Haftarah. And in fact, certain religious Zionist communities in Israel read this passage on Yom HaTzma'ud as a Haftarah, saying we've done it, that this is the beginning of the Messianic redemption, right? So most of our commentators, Rashi and down, understand that this prophecy has to refer not to Hezekiah. It has to refer to a distant Messianic era, because this hasn't happened yet, not even close. But wait a minute, it has to be Hezekiah. We have a three-pronged plan. But he wasn't the messianic king. I'm sorry, he was fabulous. This led to a serious rabbinic battle, like really serious and often very harsh, with spears flying through, through words and, you know, just very, very passionate debate on both sides of the fence. If you want to hear one side of the fence, certain commentators said it has to be Hezekiah, so we have to explain this thing. So either it's wild poetic exaggeration and indeed, that would be pretty wild. There's nothing close to this happening. Hezekiah was, you know, got devastated by the Assyrians. I'm sorry. Yes, Jerusalem was spared. But nobody would say this re- remotely resembles what we're talking about. The exiles did not come back. There was one commentator who 
he's actually one of the, you want to hear, you know, we live in an age where every rabbi needs haskamot, you know, where great rabbis approve of their works. Here are three haskamot. Rashi was profoundly influenced by this commentator, not as much as Ibn Ezra was, two of the greatest commentators of all time, but here's the best rabbinic haskama, approbation. Rambam refers to this commentator as one of the most intelligent of our commentators. Rambam has other words to describe commentators who he likes less. But in this case, he calls him one of our most intelligent commentators. And yet, most very strongly yeshiva-educated people have never heard of this man, even though Rashi and Ibn Ezra quote him all the time. His name is, drumroll, Rav Moshe Ibn Jikatila. He lived in 11th century Spain. He was a fabulous grammarian and commentator who wrote his commentaries in Arabic. The reason why he and several other great commentators from that era are almost unknown to most even very well-educated Jews is because Ibn Ezra simply absorbed their comments and he was better than they were. So Ibn Ezra made it, plus Ibn Ezra had the good fortune of writing in Hebrew. So Ibn Ezra simply was studied in all yeshivot all over the world, whereas if he wrote in Arabic, well, that means you could only be read by somebody who knows Arabic. So Rav Moshe Ibn Jikatila and others, even though they're quoted by the greatest of the greats, has faded out of existence. So he, but, he, but not really, because Ibn Ezra quotes him. So Rav Moshe Ibn Jikatila says on this passage, okay, look, there wasn't a worldwide splitting of sea messianic era in Hezekiah's time. We all know that. But maybe some exile sneaked across the border and got away from the Assyrian prisons. So he, he takes a lot of wrath for that one, let me tell you. Some other rabbis really go after him and say, if you can say that this prophecy is referring to a couple of refugees who broke away from a prison camp, all bets are off, and there's just no interpretation, so they give it to him. On the other hand, if you hear how the Messianic camp connects this passage to the prior passages, you can't do it, which is why the Hezekiah camp stays in, in existence. It wasn't until the 19th century that somebody said, there's a reason why, we can't, why we're fighting so much, and I'm going to fix the problem. Really cool. I remember reading this the first time. I, it wasn't outright crying. When I read a fabulous commentary, I get tears in my eyes. It's like this amazing thing. It's like when you realize, wow, Malbim just solved an 800-year rabbinic war. He's right. He's clearly right. And it's all because everybody's fighting over the wrong variable. So let's read Malbim. His grand, his grand words are right here. Source 6. With the proper outlook... First, he just summarizes the debate. The debate is, wait a minute, it's got to be Hezekiah, but wait, this sounds like the Messianic era, and these things have not happened yet. Okay, that's, he summarizes that first. Then he says, with the proper outlook, we find in these matters a powerful principle that from the moment of the first exile in Sancheriv's time began the time of redemption. I mean to say that from that time, referring to the Assyrian, this, this period that we're in, Prophets began to prophesy that there will come a redeemer who will gather these exiles from the four corners of the earth. It's important to realize that there are no what we call the later prophets, beginning with Isaiah and Amos and Hosea and Micha. There aren't any prophetic books written before that. Books of actual prophecies. So Malbim is saying part of that is that all of them, we all know, one of the hallmarks of all of these books is prediction of what we call the Messianic era. The Messianic era always comes with the ingathering of the exiles, that Jews who have been taken away from the land of Israel now will come back. You can only prophesy things like that once there are Jews in exile. Right? Before, there are ex- before there are exiled Jews, you can't predict, oh, and when the Messianic future comes, the Jews who are in exile will return. They're not there yet. 
So in the 8th century was the first time that you had mass-scale deportations of B'nai Israel, of Israelites, from their land, particularly the Ten Lost Tribes. Suddenly prophets can say, those tribes will come back. Suddenly you get messianic prophecies the way that we conventionally understand them. But then he keeps going. He says, the potential for redemption based on good deeds and repentance began already in Hezekiah's time. This is what the sages said in the chapter of Chelek. It's a chapter in the Talmud, in Tractate Sanhedrin. That the Holy One, blessed be He, wished to appoint Hezekiah as the Messiah. And Sancheriv is Gogumagog, except that a sin interfered, etc. They intended to teach that had they merited, Hezekiah himself would have been that Redeemer. And all these futuristic prophecies would have been fulfilled in his day. Since they did not merit that redemption, the prophecy remains suspended and in its potential state until its proper time. This is just fantastic. I can't, I can't, I can't praise this one enough. All right. What was the flaw of the 800 years worth of rabbis who were fighting it out? No, it has to be Hezekiah because of the flow. Because they started counting them. It's not because of calculations. That's another problem which we've had in our history. But that's not this problem, right? And then the other camp is saying, but wait, this prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. It must be distant messianic future. They're all making the same mistake. Both camps who are busy shooting at each other are making the same mistake. What they're all saying is, what is prophecy? It's about the nature of prophecy. That's what's at stake here. According to everybody who's fighting, the nature of prophecy is when Isaiah says something, he's saying, thus says God, this will happen. So one camp says, well, it's got to be Hezekiah because that's, that's the flow. And the other side said, but it didn't happen. So it can't be Hezekiah and therefore it must be the messianic future, which is why they're all at each other's throats. Malvin says that's wrong. That's not what a prophet is doing when he says something like this. What a prophet is saying is, hey, everybody, this is something that potentially should and could happen. And it could even and should happen now. When Isaiah said that a shoot shall grow out of the stump of Jesse, what he was saying is, King Hezekiah right now could be the messianic king. We could get all of this today. But we have to get our act together. The potential for the full messianic redemption is here in our midst right now. The prophet sensed it as a reality. So when he said these prophecies, there was no interruption of the flow. He was saying, the wicked of Israel purged, Assyrians crushed. Okay, Hezekiah, well, very righteous king, incredibly faithful. He's getting the people to be righteous. He embarked on a huge repentance movement. If we can get it all together, the whole messianic era could come right now. Once that didn't happen, for whatever reasons, well then, Hezekiah wasn't the Messiah, died like any other king, and suddenly there's this awful break in the flow. Because now we're reading this prophecy and we're like, this prophecy has now been deferred to the future and we still pray for it. But that wasn't the way it was supposed to be. So what Malbim is saying is that prophecy is a state of potential. And what, he say, what Isaiah is saying very palpably is, this is it, folks. We ha- we have, the Messianic era is in our midst now, today. But we have to help realize that it doesn't happen by itself. And the looming question of this all I love this looming question. Well, why exactly didn't Messiah come then? I wish it would have. It would have saved us 2,800 years worth of heartache and persecution. Right? It would have been great. After all, you do have this incredibly righteous king. You're not going to get any better. Jerusalem has been miraculously saved. 
even though it hasn't been saved yet in our saga, but it will be saved in Hezekiah's lifetime by God. Huge miracle. People are singing God's praises all over the place. The Assyrians are devastated. Okay, let's get some messianic activity here. Why didn't it happen? Well, I can't give you a full answer to that question because I'm not God, but I could give you a text-based answer from the book of Isaiah. And that's what next week will be. Suspense. Oh, 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 oh. Come on. How often do you get a hair raise? Huh? You always want to have a good suspense thing like that. Well, thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you. I look forward to seeing you then. Thank you so much.